0: Halliburton was stunned Malika. Uh, The league is stunned at this trade. First hand for three. Halliburton. What a great lead. Now he's going to steal. Cortez throws it down. There's Turner just back in. Gets his own board going strong. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. First and foremost, I hope you are having a great start to the new year. It's somehow nine days in already, and it feels like it has been longer and shorter at the same time. Um, if you haven't already, be sure to rate and review us over on Apple podcasts, podcasts. Send us any questions, comments, feedback, thoughts. We always want to hear from you. Joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, colleague and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing well. I was struggling a lot last night with insomnia. I've been oh, having I'm that sorry. problem for a while. So like it got bad enough last night that I actually looked up the difference between the word prong and tine because I was curious <laughs> to know if those are synonyms. Oh, and I boy. thought, this is a really boring topic. Surely I will fall asleep. I went down a lot of rabbit holes, determined, and found out what the difference is. I'm not going to bother people on this podcast with that, but just to point out that eventually I just gave up and started doing research for this podcast, so I just want everybody to know that we are prepared for this today. Both of us have put in the work to hopefully entertain you for however long we end up talking here.
0: I feel like I kind of need to know the difference now, otherwise it's going to haunt me at night.
1: Okay, so supposedly the difference between a prong and a tine, like if you think of a fork, the actual appendage of the fork is a prong, the part that you like spear your food with, the end is the tine. So like, or if you were oh. to think of your finger, your finger would be a prong, your fingernail would be a tine.
0: I'd never thought about my finger as a prong before, but now I'm I, not. So I'm I haven't either, be able but that's that's kind of the otherwise. best example
1: I could come up with off the top of my head. <laughs> But if anybody Fantastic. needs to write something about this or wants to use some type of a basketball analogy, now you know what the difference is. I feel I like... also, I also know what the little plastic part on the end of a shoelace is called, too. Do you know that?
0: Uh, isn't it an eyelet? Aglet, aglet, uh, same, close, very close. close,
1: very close,
0: so close. Uh, but yet so far. Um, well, Caitlin, what are we here to do today?
1: Today we're just you know we're summarizing we're at the midway point of the season the Pacers have played forty one basketball games Mark believe it or not which is and crazy. we're I believe almost exactly one month away from the NBA trade trade deadline so we're just going to recap a little bit of where this team is at why it continues to feel different as we had kind of pointed out on our last podcast. Recapping the year 2022 headed into the new year and and look ahead at what you know needs this team might have and and what players they might be interested in. Not necessarily specifics, but broader strokes.
0: Yeah. Um, I think we can start by kind of detailing the last week or so of play since we last talked. Um, just since Christmas, this team is six and two. They're playing really good offense. The defense has still been a little bit hit or miss, but they make do. Um And we were talking about this a little bit last week, and I think you feel that even more with the last couple games. Like, their their wins feel real. Like, it's not just uh, some fluke stuff. Like, the Portland game, granted, Portland has struggled a little bit of late. They haven't been the same team that they were early in the season, but that's still a really talented team with with an all-NBA-level player on it, uh, with multiple players playing well. Um, This team, who has thrived on being just, I mean, dynamic from three, I think hit seven three pointers in the Portland game, which is one of the lowest uh shooting games of the season, and they still pulled out that win. Um, so I think you know, you, you see a team that's continuing to find ways to win, um, even without some of the things that are their bread and butter. And more importantly, like you mentioned, we're 41 games in, and this team is 23 and 18. They are not in the play-in, they are currently a, a lock for the playoffs. Obviously, you know, that that can change very quickly. The the Knicks are only a half game behind, but um, regardless, I mean neither of us thought this was going to be where it was at when when the season started and even just again like the continued play uh has been pretty for, from, uh, from from December onward has been pretty uh pretty exciting to see some of the the things that they've gone through considering some of the ebbs and flows of the season.
1: Yeah, I mean, I will 100% take that L for expecting oh, them to have, a, to have a lot more Ls at this point than what they do. I mean, I will say that I was expecting that Miles and Buddy were going to be traded, if not before the start of the season then early in the early going, and that was baking in my lower win total. But even with that being said, I was clearly wrong. Um, they're much better than I thought they were going to be. And, you know, I did get called out because I forget which game it was afterwards that, oh, I think the Clippers game. Yeah, on New Year's, on New Year's Eve. I put that Tyrese and what he did down the stretch in that game and the way that he's continuing to figure out what he needs to do in search of his own offense without disrupting the offense in late game situations is changing my evaluation of this team, which was basically, you know, a recap of what we had said on our year in podcast. And some people are like, you owe this team an apology. I'm like, I, <laughs> no
0: I don't, you don't,
1: I don't think I owe them an apology. Like I, I don't, I try very hard not to be predictive. My preference is to be descriptive. So when we're going over what the losing streak was, or not losing streak, but what their seven-game road trip was, and we're looking at the situation, and their half-court offense ranks 30th, and the defense is having struggles, and they trailed by 17 or more points in all those games— and I'm looking at what the win streak was that preceded that and some of the stuff that led to why they got those wins, that was all very different than what we are currently watching now. So when I'm describing what we're watching now, I'm going to look at it in a different way. That being said, again, I have no problem. I'm glad when players... I have egg on my face because a player overachieves or a team overachieves. Believe me, both of us would much rather talk about um, fun teams and players playing well. That makes for better podcast content. But that being said, I think that you really hit the nail on the head. Like if we just look over these last five games, starting with that Clipper game, the Raptors, um, they did lose in Philadelphia, but they kind of snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory right there at yeah. the end of that one. They very much could have won that game. Um, that.
0: The, the 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 half court offense in the last 5 minutes of that game was pretty that was that was a, yeah, an odd that, trajectory from what we've that seen that was an year. aberration yeah
1: um from what we've been seeing lately i didn't like the process and the overtime for sure especially when you looked at that last possession of the i think it was of regulation before they had the two turnovers where you know they hunted james harden good you know he was basically a turnstile on the perimeter tyrese gets that mismatch no problem with that but it was very good because they had Miles Turner setting a flare screen at the elbow with Buddy behind the flare. Trez is guarding Miles, so it's going to be win-win. As soon as as soon as Tyrese beats James against that mismatch at the wing, then either Miles is going to command attention from Trez, and that's going to be a wide-open paint for Tyrese to attack, or Trez is going to collapse on the drive, and then Miles can dive right behind him, which is what happened. Miles had great timing. They got that dunk. Like, that was the blueprint for how they needed to attack that. And then when they got into the overtime, it became very much, you know, catch and hold and the isolations were a lot more stagnant, which mm-hmm. isn't how this team has been successful. but that being aside, Portland and Charlotte, I think that both of us would probably agree that all four of those wins took on very different character yeah. and that's that's what's more compelling for me like you said like you go into Portland, that was their season worst shooting performance from three. And they gave up, I believe, twelve or thirteen offensive rebounds. Like if you had told me that ahead of the game, I'd be like, oh, that's that's a disaster. Like yeah, they're that's not going a loss, in that basketball game. But then you know they hold Portland to, I believe, two points over the last six and a half minutes of the game, and that wasn't all fluky. I mean, I think Portland could have made a couple better decisions, and I kind of suspect from the other games that I've watched from Damian Lillard lately that he might be secretly somewhat hampered by something because he couldn't hit anything in that game. There was probably two or three times where he could have got to the rim and he passed out to the corners and didn't look super interested in testing that, whether it was miles or one of the other bigs on the floor. So there was some of that, but They were showing a lot of different defensive looks in that game as well while they were holding that. like We were seeing some of the trapping, the half-court trapping at the beginning of the fourth quarter. They were doing a lot of hedge and show. They were rotating differently out of that hedge and show, and I do think that the scrambling has gotten – Somewhat better even by comparison because the scrambling was not good when they were doing half-court trapping against Paul George um, the week prior at the start of the fourth quarter. They had to come out of that because it was fairly rickety and they didn't have the size on the backside to be really protecting the rim when Miles was coming up with the screener and trapping and he was that far away from the basket. So to see them do that in Portland and then completely reverse the script. Last night or yesterday afternoon, I guess I should say against the Hornets, where they have this 43-point fourth quarter. And, like, it just did not seem like the short, the Hornets had any answer for them offensively yeah. down the stretch. I don't know how you felt about that game.
0: Oh, no, that was – I mean, that was that was definitely the case. I thought, especially down the – I mean, we can talk about the offense, too, but defensively, I thought Miles was really impressive. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was really good. And then, I mean, I clipped it today, too, just watching the game, and it was like, miles get late late clock off the dribble fading away hits like a 19 footer like that was just the kind of game he was having yesterday he was so good um but yeah i agree especially late uh they really weren't getting anything out of their rollers and Lamelo wasn't really having an easy time scoring either so it just was uh yeah especially in that fourth it was uh i i i don't have any disagreement there
1: yeah because it was back to what they do as a team again like you Mm -hmm. know we're and why it was even, again, like, if I go back and look and say, like, people want to be like, you owe the team apology. I'm like, okay, but this Hornets game was much different than the prior Hornets game. Like, when they were down in Charlotte in the fourth quarter, and Matherin and Lamelo were kind of exchanging, you know, scoring barbs. And it was just the two of them going back and forth, which was compelling to watch. The Pacers ended up half-court trapping Lamello, And they gave up open three-point looks out of that. The Hornets just shot one of seven for the rest of the quarter. And then, inexplicably, they had Plumley. And Rozier or whoever was defending at the point of attack in drop coverage against Tyrese and miles for like the entirety of the fourth quarter. And they did have Plumlee and drop throughout at various points yesterday, but they were also bringing him clear up at the level and above the level they were mixing in other defensive tactics, trying to show Tyrese a lot of different looks, trying to show Miles different looks, and the Pacers were still finding ways around that. So, again, like that's just more meaningful for me when you're able to do different things defensively, and I'm watching a team try to make adjustments and try to figure that stuff out, and I'm still watching, like even at the beginning of the fourth quarter, when it was Andrew Nemhard running offense after TJ McConnell had hurt his shoulder, he had one turnover against that hedge, but otherwise, like he was either turning the corner against it and firing, making the right reads. He made a pull-up shot, I believe, against it. Um, And Tyrese as well. Like, I mean, he did so many things manipulating pocket passes yesterday, whether it was a fake floater, it was a fake, you know, it was a fake pass and then he would go into the shot or, you know, even against Portland when he used that spin dribble, um, borderline a yo-yo dribble to freeze the defense, so that he can, he's just making things so easy on Miles to be able to roll to the rim. Mm-hmm. And that's not me trying to degrade anything that Miles is doing. He's been playing really well as really well as well. It's just that you know Tyrese just he's such a pleasure to watch.
0: Yeah, I, a couple things on that. Number one, like you mentioned with the manipulation, it feels like he is just like he's been good this entire year, of course. But it feels like especially over these last like pro- I would say two weeks, Tyrese has really just hit another level with. Um, his pacing in, in, uh, in the ways attacking out a pick and roll. It feels like Um, it, I mean, the, the stuff that miles is getting, like you mentioned again, it's not to take away from miles, but it feels like Tyrese has just been adding that little extra, um, that little extra sauce to everything that, that opens things up just a little bit more. And I feel, at least for me, that's really hit the last, last week or two. Um, But then also what you mentioned as well, like Andrew Nembhard's, uh, Nemhard's box score isn't any different he's been playing some special basketball lately. Like he was so good in that Sixers game uh, defensively and what he was doing offensively as well. But um, he just is so smooth right now. Like he has been the entire year, but um, the, th- I mean, I, it's going to be painted by him shooting like 55% from three since Christmas. Granted on, like I think he's passing up some attempts even, but like he's doing a little bit more on relocation. He's still getting the pull up off. Um, it just looks so snappy and good right now. And then he has, like you again in that Sixers game, you had a couple buckets, just like some good turnarounds and like getting into the teeth defense. I, I just, I really am so every time I get to watch that dude play, is awesome. He's so fun to watch.
1: There's a lot of nuance with him. Um, yeah, definitely, I think one of the most underrated things. Like, I'm not going to write an entire article like I did about Benedict's jab step, but. He uses a lot of head fakes, and that that really lets him get from point A to point B, and I think that that's somewhat underrated. He even uses some baiting techniques like that on defense as well. The list of tiny things that he does on defense is very long that probably don't get paid attention to enough. I mean, I wrote an article after the Laker game summarizing what his season impact had been, and I could add even more techniques that he's been showing off and doing since i mean my favorite thing that he does is the way that they defend ghost screens and how physically is with it so that he disrupts the momentum of that screener when they get there and actually forces them to have to set the screen makes it more of a static action he's better at that than anybody else on the roster he's better at peel switching and communicating that than anybody else on the roster um it's just like that possession. I mean, it's not here recently, but that one against the Lakers is still wows me that he was able to front LeBron, peel off the post-peel, defend a 45 drive, and then get out on the kickout and run run Austin Reeves off the line to be able to do all that. There's nobody else on the roster that can do that. And Aaron Smith's done some very um, – he, he has a lot of clutch hustle plays that we can point to. There's just nobody else with that type of recognition that Andrew Nemhard has. He's so good, too. Like when Miles communicates blue, he flips his hips so quickly when they need to go into ice coverage and then funnels that in. There's nobody that does that as well as he does. Um, So, yeah, a a lot of good stuff from Andrew Nemhard. But, yeah, the one thing that I did want to say is like late in that Charlotte game, the other thing that between Tyrese and Miles is like they continue to think through. Um, what they're doing in late game situations and who they're calling into screening actions a lot better than what they were doing the last time when we talked about the fourth quarter meltdowns, going back to that Nick game when they kept calling Julius Randall and the action and isolating there. And you and I didn't really understand that like last night against the Hornets. It's like, okay, well they're, they're trapping if miles brings the screen. So we'll just bring the initial screen have it be Nemhard, get LaMelo in space. And we're going to set that screen before Tyrese even gets to half court. We're going to get Cody Martin off him as a full-court pest, get LaMelo in space. He's going to drive that and then find Miles Turner, just kick it to him in the corner, and Miles hits the three. Like It just felt like whatever Charlotte did, which, again, is why it's more meaningful to me, whatever they did to adjust, the Pacers had an answer for. They just couldn't get a stop, so... You know, I can point to, like I said, during all five of these wins, the clipper game. You look at the end of that one. They were hunting Luke Kennard, yes, but they weren't stalling the offense out and doing it. Miles was good enough against the switches that eventually Ty Lu was like, we have to put Zubots back on the floor. When they put Zubots back on the floor, then Tyrese was like, Oh, okay. Well, then I'm just gonna attack him and drop coverage. You know, they go to the Toronto game, and that game's all about the bench. Like, the bench really shows up. They, they outscore the Raptors 57-4. to um, I believe, to me, that was all about Rick Carlisle's game management. That was a big win for Rick Carlisle over Nick Nurse. Maybe Nick Nurse. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why he plays his starters as much as they do. Um, but the starters just ran out of gas. And, while wow, the Pacers had, like, nobody that played even over 32 minutes in that game. Then we, we talked about the Philadelphia game. They could have won that one. The Portland game's all about them getting stops late, and last night it's all about their opponent not being able to stop them. So when we look at all that type of stuff, it just makes me like, I'm not saying that I think this team's necessarily, again, I don't want to be predictive. I don't know what this means for a playoff series. I just know that I believe in it and what they're doing more than I did a month ago, for sure.
0: Yeah, uh, I concur in entirety, which is part of, I mean, this is the big reason for why we want to have this pie because um, as you mentioned, you're really close to the trade deadline, somehow already at the halfway point of the season, which means we, we got to talk about, uh what the team should be looking for per se um i guess the first thing i want to ask is has your mind changed at all about how active the team should or shouldn't be
1: i mean in a sense yes because i believe in tyrese halliburton that much i don't know if that's gonna make sense to you but
0: no i get what you're saying like, i think
1: that that I, I believe that the timeline is quicker than what we thought necessarily that it was. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't have been, I would have been opposed to them getting another high draft pick, but if you have Tyrese and that's a top 20 player, a top, which, I mean, I think he's pretty easily been playing like here lately that might expedite what you're willing to do. And I would hope that the Pacers are willing to think big. And that doesn't mean I'm hoping that they get a sixth center on the roster. It's just that, I hope that they don't go into it with a buyer's mentality and lock themselves into like a core that's like, oh, that's a nice group. I hope that if they're willing to take a swing, that they're willing to take a swing. Um, And that applies to the trade deadline and free agency next year. Like If they're thinking that their timeline is quicker than what they thought, I hope that they're willing to think big.
0: I I like what you're saying here because I think I'm in the same boat. Uh, To me, what this last two weeks of basketball has been and maybe it's me needing to dislodge my own head a little bit but also just trying to really value where this team is at like I I think I'm not I think like I am there with you I think with how Tyrese has played with how good Miles has been and I think that's another discussion we're going to have shortly in terms of talking about Miles but um like I just think Ty I think the world of Tyrese and what he's doing right now and I think that Part of what makes it difficult is that there's really not an answer of is it better to get playoff experience even if you're not quote unquote a contender or is it better to, you know, make sure that you get a higher draft pick. And I think I just am veering closer into the I think that Tyrese is too good to just not that. I mean, at least for where we're at now, it's too late to to just be like, well, tank the season or I, I think we're hitting the point where it's too late to do that. Um and I also just don't know that you really should like Tyrese has been playing awesome. It's been really nice to watch. There's been good development. So I don't, you know, there's, there's a lot to dig into with that, but I mean, I'm exactly what you're saying. I think that you kind of like, I mean, getting that playoff experience, you can't really discount that. Um, what it means in the long term, I don't, I don't know really, but at the same point I I don't really know what it means to, to do the other thing either with how that might play out. So I think, Um, kind of like what you're saying, like, don't do the Wesley Matthews trade, uh, or not trade the signing, uh, not even that that's wrong, but like, okay, if you're going out to make a trade, do it for something that you view as not just being important for helping you win the playoffs this year, but in being somebody who is going to make you, uh, who helps push you towards being contender in two or three years, um, because that's, I mean, that's what they've talked about wanting to do. And if that's how they value it, and I think Tyrese is on that track, then yeah, I'm I'm right there too. Like, I think if you're trying to add somebody, it's you're adding star is a maybe too easy word to throw around, but you're adding a, a complimentary player who is going to be around for a while. Like, I think that's the, the, the vision, at least for me.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think to me, the turning point of this season was the Knicks game which is somewhat a coincidence that they are now playing the Knicks as their next opponent. But what happened late in that game in the fourth quarter, and then what they've done since, only losing two games to the Pelicans the day after Christmas and to that Sixers team without Joel Embiid, which that was a very winnable game for them. Um, Just the processing, the lineup change, and the lineup change technically happened against the Miami Heat when they first started starting Aaron Smith, although they did go big for one game there against the Cavs and then did play Jalen and Ijax together off the bench in that game against the Knicks. So like if we just want to look at those numbers, because this feels like the actual Pacer team that we're evaluating basically over these last ten games. Yeah, eight and
0: two in their last ten, which
1: Yeah. Like that feels like what we should be looking at because I think this is what rotation they're mainly going to be using moving forward. That being said, maybe that changes a little bit now. I don't know what TJ McConnell's status is going to be. That might alter, you know, one or two spots, depending upon how that looks. But as of right now, they're still a middling defense, still sixteenth over that span. They are not a top ten offense. Um half court offense, they are fourteenth. Net rating, though, they're eighth. They're still barely getting to the free throw line themselves and they're still giving up a ton of offensive rebounds. But that was the case before they made this lineup change. I mean, I believe they ranked 27th in opponent offensive rebounding rate before they inserted Aaron Neesmith into the lineup the first time against the heat. But during this stretch, they ranked 30th in opponent second chance points. Um, The one thing that I wanted to point out when I wrote that Isaiah Jackson story is though that they rank 30th. They're giving up 17, I believe 17.6 opponent second chance points per game. But if you look, they are nine and five this year in games when they've given up 18 or more second chance points. So, like, certainly not ideal, but they've proven that they can win while they're doing that. And that goes back to their main factors, their main ways that they go about winning. They're going to reel off as many fast break opportunities as possible, their second in transition frequency, third in transition efficiency, and sixth in three point percentage over this stretch. So, they are pretty dependent on three point variance and their ability to play in the open court. So you got to look ahead and think to yourselves, like how sustainable is that type of stuff? And we just talked about how they have shown that they can win in a couple different ways over the stretch. I don't know why the Portland trailblazers are turning the ball over as much as they are. I don't think all those turnovers were forced by the Indiana Pacers. I don't think all the turnovers that they committed in the next game against the Toronto Raptors were caused by the Toronto Raptors either. They just seem to have a really bad problem with ball security for whatever reason. But I think that you can count that this team will have enough people that can get hot shooting-wise, I do wonder what will happen to the transition frequency in a playoff-like setting. Um, Will we see more teams who will be like, you know what, we're going to full court, we're going to do what Drew Holiday did against Chris Paul in the NBA Finals, and we're going to full court press Tyrese Halliburton for an entire game, and you know, maybe we'll even throw in some trapping there to really try to bother him. We're going to switch, we're going to do switch to blitz to get the ball out of his hands, at a more extreme level than we're seeing right now. Um, The cliche goes the games slow down in in the playoffs. Um, Those numbers didn't completely support that a year ago in the playoffs. Some teams still were able to play faster, but given how dependent they are on being able to play in the open court, I think that's somewhat worth being able to ask and just in part because it's not like the defense has taken a major step up. Um, they've been very good in the minutes when miles has been on the court, but then that's what we need to get into next. So do you want to talk about what the miles situation is?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Um, um yeah, I'll go, go ahead. ahead
1: and read, um, Mark Stein over the weekend for people who don't know, and his Substack reported the following on Saturday quote, miles Turner to this point has rebuffed Indiana's contract extension offers. League sources say there are teams out there naturally hoping that Turner, or Jordan Clarkson will be in play for trades before the deadline. I don't see the jazz trading Clarkson Turner's situation continues to be harder to read. So effectively the Pacers have the option because he is extension eligible and will hit free agency next year that they can. And because they're under the cap and have salary cap space that they can do a renegotiation extension, which I believe would put his salary for the rest of this year at about 37 million. And then could potentially that could, um, descend over the next several years to the point where if if they negotiated this way, where like as he's aging, that dollar number would be Descending, and then that would be team-friendly for the Pacers. Miles, of course, has to agree to want to do that. He would be getting a lot more money this year than the $18 million he's making and would make more over the totality of the number. But if he just goes and hits free agency, he could potentially make more money in that scenario, whether he stays with the Pacers or goes to another team. So that's kind of the situation the Pacers find themselves in. I, and I doubt you do either, I'm not going to speculate on exactly what Miles Turner wants to do. I don't know what his motivations are. That's a decision for him to make and he can make it for whatever reason he wants to. But if the information that we have right now is that he's not going to sign a contract extension, what opinion do you have about that Mark about how the Pacers should approach that headed into the trade deadline?
0: Uh, I think again, I think that my mind has almost changed up a little bit on this one uh, over the last couple of weeks because Like you mentioned, I think if this is a team that is going to. I mean, like clearly they are capable of doing quite a bit this year, Um, just based on what they've done again, like we've talked about, I think that playoffs is a different story, but he's been the second best player and at times best player on the team. When you look at what he's doing impact wise, like I think the defense is going to go undersold nationally this year, and I understand why, but. He's really raised this the floor of what the team defense is. Like the a lot of these games are not being won without him on the court. Um, what he's brought offensively as a roller, like granted, there have been multiple guys who are capable uh as a roller, but he just brings that extra oomph and pop with how assertive he's been this year. And when you combine both sides of the ball, like that can't be, be replicated by anybody on the roster. Um, so that's a long way of saying I think if they if he can get to the point where he views it, like I, and I'm not trying to say that I know what he thinks or what the team thinks, but if both parties view him as being like a feasible part of the roster for the next this next era, I think re signing is, is pertinent. Like get that done. Uh I think that regardless, like these next two, three weeks, like before the trade deadline, they need to have a full final commitment. Like this cannot this can't go on again. Like I think that Either a trade needs to happen or they have to 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 resign him to a long term deal, uh, which seems like simplistic. But I mean, we've co- been coming to a head for this with yeah, I mean, just for a long time. So I think especially for where the team is at right now, I think it makes it all that more important to to get that figured out.
1: OK, so that that was mainly what I was wanting to know, is that would you be willing to gamble if he doesn't sign an extension? Would you be willing to let? That ride, and just hope that he resigns in free agency in in May or I mean in July.
0: Wait, sorry, can you repeat that?
1: Would you be willing to gamble on him resigning in July if he doesn't sign an extension before the trade deadline?
0: Uh, I probably would not.
1: yeah, that's that's kind of where I land as well. I mean, he I mean, said
0: it himself at the beginning of the year. Yeah, he said <laughs> I, it on a
1: podcast, like the Pacers could potentially risk losing me for nothing. Yeah, And I mean, again, that's why this has been somewhat of a roller coaster. And I'm not going to say that I know what he's thinking. And I'm sure that like winning and playing with somebody the caliber of Tyrese might have changed his opinion if his opinion was different at the beginning of the season. But given what that podcast was, we there is that potentiality. And to be honest, like as good as the team feels right now, and I do acknowledge that this feels different than what the beginning of the season was. What if after the Chay deadline, they come back after post All Star break and stuff starts to go differently? And maybe they get in a play in tournament and they lose in the very first game in, in bad fashion. Like imagine, you know, two years ago, the way that the Charlotte Hornets, who had very good vibes all that year, lost to the Pacers in the play in tournament. That mm-hmm. left somewhat of a sour taste going into that summer. And they really haven't recaptured that since. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to the Pacers. I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, what if it does? And then he walks and you didn't get anything in return. Like I just, to me, that's, I, I am risk averse. That's not, that's not a chance I would be willing to take. I would know what number I'm willing to pay him. And if that's what it is in the extension and he turns it down, I'd be like, okay, then we don't have a choice. And this is what puts the patients in a very bad spot because obviously they're playing better basketball than they have at any point, probably in the last two years. And they've now accumulated all these wins with him. And he's pretty key. Cause I agree with you. Like, I don't want to be completely derogatory to Jalen and Isaiah Jackson, but they're not going to replicate what he does for you defensively, especially if they want to maintain this four guard iteration. Mm -hmm. So if they get into, if they still were in play and position, if they managed to do that after they traded miles Turner, I'm not high on their chances um, in a postseason situation without miles. So then it was, then it will kind of be to the point of like, yes, you got, you got some individual development from various guys, but like, what was the season for? Because now you're not in position to get a good draft pick and you're also not positioned to necessarily do something in the postseason without your defensive anchor. So um, it does put them in a tough spot. I acknowledge that they were also in a tough spot over the summer. Because if they wanted to do something with Buddy and Miles, obviously the Lakers weren't coming to play with both picks. And who knows what the offers were for Miles coming off of that foot injury. They likely felt that they needed to bring him back to recoup his value, even if they felt at the time like, okay, he's not signing an extension. Because at the time, it was also reported that he wasn't doing it. Maybe they thought Mm -hmm. they could change his mind. But now this has gone on long enough that like what you just said, like right now over these last 10, the defensive rating with Miles on the court is 109.6, and they're plus 11.7 when he's out there. I do not think he's the most important player because I don't think everything that he's doing offensively would be possible without Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Healed on the court. Yeah. I think that opens up a lot for him, and that's kind of an interesting element of, for, this, for him as well, that if he gets traded midseason, this is kind of the ideal place for him to be boosting his free agency dollars right now. Yeah. Um, depending upon what team he gets traded to, like, let's just pretend hypothetically speaking, I do think that he would do a lot for the Toronto Raptors in terms of adjusting how aggressive they have to be defensively to cover up for what they don't have at the rim with a big, but like, let's say that he were just get traded there and buddy's not going with him. And you're in a situation where they don't necessarily have a guard to run offense for him. Clearly not the caliber of Tyrese Halliburton. And they also don't have, you know, much shooting to speak of around him to be preventing some of the tags that he doesn't see now. I don't know what that would do for his trade value. I mean, I think he would do good things for the Toronto Raptors. I think he would help them, but you know, I, for his sake, it's probably in his best interest to want to remain here for the end of the season, whether he stays here or not, just for the reasons that we just laid out. But like, it's a tough spot but i agree with you that if he's not going to sign an extension i think you 100% have to be very aggressive looking for a deal and and hoping that you're just going to get the best return possible um and and you know and that goes into it too that like what is the best return going to possible going to be because they brought him back to recoup his value but now you know you're a month out from the de- the deadline if he's not going to sign an extension with the Pacers, what do you sign an extension with the next team if they don't have that commitment are they going to like what type of value are you going to be getting back for a half year rental at this point
0: no, that's a great point. Um and also just a random random thing that I did want to want to pull in. Um it's um it's it's really some something that I've thought about it recently uh that I think has made me a little bit more open to the idea of the Pacers still playing out this year fully competitive. And again, not that they wouldn't be competitive, but you know what I mean, like not trading Buddy or Miles is a uh, just thinking about the fact that they do have three first round picks this year, um, like they do have. And I think because we've talked about this, I don't really think that there's a room for them to add three players. Um, I'm really interested to see how aggressive they will be in trying to move up in the draft, because I frankly think that they should be, uh, especially, you know, if if they do continue on the track that they're on right now. So that was something I just wanted to ask. I was thinking about that.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, and that's again, it's different. Like if you can get miles to sign an extension, then great. Um, he's young enough. It, I think the fit's been decent enough offensively in a lot of these games. I think that there's been a few rough ones where teams have done things that I felt have been a little bit more playoff coverage against him that have made me be like, hmm. And that's kind of the bad part of this too, is that, you know, we won't get a chance to see how teams defend Tyrese and Miles in a playoff setting before answering some of these questions or before the patients mm-hmm. are going to have to answer them unless they're willing to gamble on it. Um, But yeah, I mean, the draft pick situation, that's another thing that you can bring into this that what I said before, like, I I hope the Pacers are willing to think big. I hope that they're willing to, you know, not just settle for something that will make them a decent team or that will be a complementary core, but that could really push them into the next thing, because that's what more than anything else that's what this season was supposed to be about. I mean, I think that the decision makers headed into this season, if we're being honest, thought pretty similarly to us because they were very much couching it as like, we're going to judge progress this season based on month over month progress and what we can see from these guys, it's not going to be about wins or losses. They said that they didn't think there was a quick fix at the trade deadline, that they had to do something dramatic, that they were thinking in three to four year increments. That does not in any way suggest to me that they thought that they were going to potentially be a playoff team this year, or that they would need to maximize or optimize winning in the playoffs this year. That being said, Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily thought they were going to be optimizing winning in the playoffs this year, or that the timeline would be that it is. But in terms of thinking big, that could be, you know, what you're doing and moving up in the draft and being aggressive in the draft. Or that could be flipping those picks into a player that you think is going to give you more than just a complementary core. Because, like I said, this season was supposed to be about we don't want to be a team anymore that's just, you know a tough out. It was supposed to be, how do we take the next step forward to potentially be a contender? And right now I don't necessarily, I I don't see this team as, you know, a championship contender. That doesn't mean that they haven't been very good, but it's how do you get from that to the next level and how many years that's going to take you. So yeah, I I do agree with you about the fact that they they have Boston's pick. They're going to have most likely Cleveland's pick unless something catastrophic happened there and their own pick. So That definitely is another talking point. Um, One other thing I wanted to get into one of the few sour points to talk about the team at the current juncture, the sophomores. So Hmm. do you have any thoughts about Isaiah Jackson and Chris Duarte of late? Why, you know, Ijax has fallen out of the rotation and why Chris has been struggling as much as it seems as though he is.
0: Other than about a five minute stretch in the Portland game, Chris has been pretty, uh, pretty forgettable since returning from injury. Um, it's been pretty rough going for him here. Uh, and like you mentioned, I mean, uh, you wrote a really great article on Ajax. Um, it would be hard to even talk about him uh, because it feels like he has, I mean, not feels like, I mean, he's hardly even played. He was accruing DNPs for most of December until injuries forced him into the rotation lately. So, yeah, its it has been pretty rough for the sophomores.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't the place that we felt about them, or at least I don't think this is where we felt about them when we recorded the year in pods last year, the one series. Um, for Chris's sake, just to provide some context, he has not made a shot in five of the last six games. I believe he made two against the Portland Trail Blazers during mm-hmm. that roughly four-minute stretch that you mentioned. He's shooting 9% from the field during that span, two of his last 22 field goals, 0 of 9 from 3 with as many turnovers as assists. He played exactly four minutes yesterday against the Charlotte Hornets. He did not play in the second half. They played buddy with the bench in the second half. Um, Duarte and TJ McConnell were subbed out from playing with the bench fairly early. I think for reasons that were somewhat obvious, I mean, Charlotte to their credit, I felt was doing pretty well at preventing TJ from being able to attack baseline. And when mm-hmm. you take that probing line out for him and cover up the corner, it was really bogging their offense down. And there was like one or two possessions where it was like, Hey, TJ dribbles for a while. and Then he tosses it to Chris and Chris dribbles for a while until he finally finds a shot. And then he takes that. Um, so The shot just isn't falling for him, and that's a piece of it, and I do want to point out he obviously missed a very long time with the ankle injury, five weeks, and at the start of the season at points, it seemed to me that the toe had either gotten tweaked or wasn't completely 100% clear spanning back from last year. But I'll admit, this is an L I'm not happy to take because I felt pretty positively about him over the summer. I liked what we saw from him in the first summer league game. He, I didn't think he needed to play in more summer league games, and apparently the Pacers didn't think he did either because he only played in one. When I watched him play with the Puerto Rican national team, including the friendlies, I really liked what his patience was, bobbing and weaving around screens in the pick and roll. The defensive coverage is different, but his approach was also different. And that was something that the team talked about at media day that they were even seeing from him in pregame workouts. And to watch him now, I mean, he's barely getting to the rim. And when he gets there, the results are not good. I think Mm -hmm. his rim frequency is like 20.9%. And he's finishing on like 40% of those looks. Um, So it's not even just the shot. It's the overall span for him. So like, do you have any diagnosis for why you think the struggle has been what it is or like anything that could change or move the needle for him moving forward with the Pacers?
0: Um. I just, it, I don't know if you felt the same way. I, I feel like he just really hasn't fit the style of how they want to play. Like he's not that I think that he's like a low field player, but he's like to hold the ball quite a bit. Um, like he likes to get into his jab series. Um, it's not often that he's just, it, at least to me, it hasn't really ever felt like he's just straight up attacking right off the catch. Like he likes to do one or two moves and size up and then go. Um, and I think in some ways for an offense that is largely like, trying to play transition in the half court it hasn't really felt like it works even with like even in the in the portland game where he did hit a one of his pull-up jumpers like he almost runs into a roller or roller almost runs at him it just he hasn't really felt connected um i i don't really i mean obviously it, it does feel like the foot is still bothering him uh but at the same point like i think the overall process has just been rough too
1: I mean, he's not getting a very consistent diet of shots, and I think that that's part of the problem, is he's playing in these bench lineups with Ben, and to be honest, even if he was starting, let's like, let's pretend they swapped roles and Andrew Nemhard started running bench offense. Like, let's pretend T.J. McConnell can't play because of the shoulder injury, and again, this is completely hypothetical. I know nothing about T.J.'s shoulder, um, but let's pretend that, that Andrew gets moved to the bench and he starts running bench offense as backup point guard, and they're like, let's start, Chris. I think the situation is going to be somewhat similar with buddy and he on the floor together as what it is with him and Ben, it feels very much like it's hard to establish both of them at the same time. Um, And in a different way than what I felt during summer league, because they ran some stuff with Ronald Norred during summer league, when they were starting Ben and Duarte together, that, I very much liked like whether it was mover blocker where they're both going around continuous flares and pins, or, you know, there was times where like Matherin might be the high side single tag and they were running Spain action. But instead of Chris being the back screener, they would pull him out from the roller and have him go off an exit screen. So like they were both providing tension simultaneously, or like one of them would be a ghost screener and the other one would come off a corner pin in like they were doing stuff at the same time. And a lot of times during this offense, it feels like, and the few games that Chris has played well, that it doesn't always seem like they're both playing well at the same time, if that makes sense. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. completely coincidental. And again, I think that would somewhat apply to buddy. Cause I mean, buddy gets used just as much or more a lot of times in the starting lineup and these types of actions as Ben does with the bench. So like I thought the Toronto game was kind of telling in this sense, because one thing that the bench is going to a lot when they're out there is they run in horns. So Ben will be at the one horn and then the, Jalen will be at the other one. They'll input it to Ben and TJ will run off that. If they can get a hand back, then TJ just goes straight to the rim off like the backdoor um blind pig type looking pass to to go right to the basket. If they don't get that hand back, then Jalen comes across and Ben gets a screen in that like LeBron-type play that LeBron got all the time in Cleveland and they sometimes run with the Lakers with the NAD. And Ben will dribble off that pick and roll and then get all the way to the rim and draw a foul. So that happened in the first half against Toronto where they got Malachi Flynn in rearview pursuit. Ben attacked the basket and got an and-one. And the second half, they let Chris have that role. So instead of putting Chris in the corner, they put Chris at the horn. And he tried to do that. And what you're saying is the case. Like, he's he's not doing anything. He's not attacking right into Christian Coloco. It's a pull-up too. So a lot of the stuff, like I said, he's not getting to the rim very often. And when he does, he's not finishing. Like, he just doesn't have that same ability to attack and master the dark arts of drawing contact that Ben has. So then it makes it less compelling to run those types of actions for him. And the other thing that popped into my head when I was reviewing some of his stuff today is that when you look last season... Do you know who assisted Chris more than anybody else last year for the Indiana Uh, Pacers? Was it Malcolm? No, it was, it was Sabonis by a wide margin. So Sabonis assisted 43 of his field goals and Sabonis by far and away assisted the most of his twos and his shots at the rim. So part of me wonders if he just doesn't, if he's the type of player, like what we had seen, like they're very different players, but like, because Chris isn't that good at shooting off of motion. And shooting off of screens. That's been something that I thought would show up more for him than what it has. But like looking at Doug and what happened when Doug played in the bubble during the playoffs and Sabonis wasn't there, and it was like he was just kind of invisible. He couldn't get into the same stuff anymore. Like if Chris needs to play on a team with a playmaking hub as a big where he can play off of that type of, you know, back cuts and getting handoffs so someone else can set him up at the rim in a way that this offense doesn't have as much of, like they do run delay. Like you'll see miles and Jalen or Ijax or whoever running handoffs, but it's not as much nuance for that big to be the initiator. If that makes sense, it's more just like, Hey, we're throwing it to you. Now you reverse it to the other side of the floor, Um, less than what you would have seen the two man game between you know doug and sabonis in those situations or even chris and sabonis where that had kind of blossomed last year so i don't know if that part of it plays anything for him too like some of it he is just getting open shots and he's just not making them and that that part lands on him but there just isn't on this current roster i can't come up with a reason to get him more involved and be like okay if it's all about winning that i'm gonna stop running those plays for buddy and i'm gonna run them for chris duarte and likewise off the bench, well, I'm going to swap Chris into that play instead of Benedict. So like maybe if they find some more actions, like I said, some of that stuff that we saw in Summer League where they're both doing a little bit more at the same time, then maybe, but like again, Ben getting a Chicago action versus Chris getting Chicago action. Unless the team makes some type of a mistake, there's there's not much comparison there between Who's going to be able to get to the basket out of that and who's not? And that's kind of why we see Chris kind of just hanging out in the corners more in those types of low usage roles. And then, like I said, if you're going to swap him with Nemhard, like I don't think Chris is a bad defender, but he does not make the same impact that Andrew Nemhard does. He doesn't do everything that Andrew Nemhard does. So, like, if we circle this back to the trade deadline, it kind of becomes a question again. And it's not because I don't like what Chris Duarte does or I don't think he could contribute to a good team, it's just that there's enough other players occupying those spaces that I'm not sure if he's going to be able to fully grow if that makes sense
0: no I think that definitely makes sense especially with how good Benedict's been already like I think I mean in his first two weeks I think Benedict showed more potential wise and jettisoned himself up the ladder of of prospects on the team than what Chris had done last year that's not to be unfair but that there's just levels to it
1: because even if you look down the road I mean I think that if, even if they traded Buddy, which I'm I'm not saying that I think that's going to happen, but even if they traded Buddy, I think that you would just start Andrew Nemhard and Benedict Matherin
0: because yeah. I think
1: that you're still going to want Andrew Nemhard on the top assignments because you don't want Benedict Matherin doing that.
0: Yeah, definitely um, not.
1: <laughs> so and then off the bench, like at that point, like let's pretend that they find a long term answer at the four spot. I've liked what Aaron neesmith has been doing better than what Chris has been doing as well in terms of a two way impact. So then are you playing Aaron Neesmith at backup two or three? And does, like I just, there's not a good way to be doing all of this at once. And like uh, certain games, there's going to be times where like, again, like they've needed everybody. And that's kind of the benefit of, of what their depth has been. But I, I just don't think it's ideal. And there's times where he's looked very frustrated over these last several games. And I don't know what his body feels like only he can answer that. And if that's a component of it, the team's aware of that, then maybe they're willing to wait it out and see how he fits the rest of the year. But I could see a situation where, um, you might be looking to use him to address other needs on the roster. But if you want to talk more broadly, just, Oh, I guess we didn't talk about Isaiah Jackson. So where, where do you stand on the thermometer with Isaiah Jackson?
0: I think it's kind of time to pull the plug, to be honest. Um, maybe that's too drastic, but, um, I mean, he went down and played in the G League for a little bit and was, I mean, he's too good to play in the G League. He's kind of at the same stage that, that Gogo was at two years ago where, okay, if I go down and play in the G League, I... I'm playing awesome. Like I clearly am, I'm I'm ready for pro minutes. It's just, okay, is he going to be able to play through the mistakes and and get better? And um, it just hasn't been there. Um, Like we've talked about it. Like there haven't really been any, and this isn't to say that he hasn't worked hard or that there haven't been attempts, but it's just tangibly in game. There have not been significant strides made this year. So um, given what his role has been, I I I think that it's just kind of time to be like, OK, well, we we this is not working for either party and we got to we got to figure it out. I Maybe they view it differently, but that's kind of where I would be at right now.
1: My thing with it is exactly what I wrote in the column and that it just feels like all of this was somewhat foreseeable. And that's kind of where I land with it, that I understand from a basketball standpoint exactly why they did what they did. Um, like I said, they weren't a great rebounding team before they put Aaron Neesmith in the starting lineup. And by putting Aaron Neesmith in the starting lineup, they're having more shooting on the floor. They're effectively choosing, we're going to augment our strengths. We don't have a way to address our biggest weakness. So we're going to augment what we already do well while also keeping our two best defenders, perimeter defenders, in the starting lineup with Nemhard and Neesmith out there. Neesmith has defended better than Jalen Smith, including against some more physical power forwards like, mm-hmm. i.e., Julius Randle um and they give themselves a better chance of of like I said reeling off the fast break opportunities reeling off the transition opportunities and knocking down threes because Aaron has not over these last 10 games I think he's shooting like roughly 30 percent but on the whole he's been a more uh credible shooting threat in terms of how the defenses guard him than what has been the case for for Jalen Smith and he has made some individual strides I am still blown away that he uh, finished a game attacking closeouts that he (laughs) closed out a game attacking closeouts. And there has been some real progress with him on that front that he deserves credit for. So, you know, if he's just flat out out playing a guy, which I do think that generally speaking, there are times where Jalen can just be kind of casual with his screening and other stuff that Aaron, like practically runs through a brick wall. Like I said, like we can come up with a fairly long list of like clutch hustle plays that he has made. So I think that he's earned that spot. I completely understand why Rick Carlisle's doing it and why they're playing the four-guard lineups at this current juncture. That being said, I just feel like based on what they had already seen last year and the fact that they themselves were mostly playing Jalen Smith at the five, that when they re-signed Jalen Smith, it's kind of like, why did you re-sign somebody that was most likely going to, or I shouldn't say re-sign, but sign somebody who is most likely going to need to play the center spot when you already had just traded, because like, let's be honest here, like even if they, they given what it seemed like they thought this season was going to be about, which was, you know, internal development and individual growth for their young guys, you effectively signed somebody that blocked a player that you drafted from being able to play now. And if, if it was going to be about winning, like they didn't at the time know that Daniel Tice's knee was going to be what his knee has been. He went on later that summer and played in Eurobasket for Germany and they won a bronze medal. So, like, if it was just like, oh, we want a five who's going to be able to be more, you know, game ready because we want to win games, then in theory they could have just played Daniel Tyson, maybe eventually flipped him at the trade deadline. Hmm. So, like, the entire thought process, like, you have now five guys on the roster that you currently view as centers and two of them that you drafted can't play. And, like, I agree with you. I think that Isaiah Jackson and Goga clearly hold some of that. Like I pointed out a stretch in that article against the Knicks where like they were playing Jalen and Ijax at the same time. Ijax is in delay. He does not even look at the rim when he goes into the handoff. There's no contact made to help that guard to be able to turn the corner and get downhill. And then he gives RJ Barrett his strong left hand all the way to the rim at the other end of the floor. That's not providing a compelling reason to give him extra playing time. If he doesn't necessarily earn it. But at the same time, like you look over there at the bench and there he is sitting beside Goga and it just feels like, oh, that's happening again. Yeah. Like and you have another player on the bench who you doesn't have really an opportunity here and probably when you should have anticipated that you would be full up at the five. So it's really not ideal for Isaiah Jackson. But like what we just said, like if it turns out to be the case that Miles is like, I'm not going to sign an extension and the Pacers trade him at the deadline then time does open up for Isaiah Jackson and he did to his credit offensively. He played well against the Portland trailblazers. A lot of that had to do again with, you know, the manipulation of Tyrese Halliburton TJ people making a very, I felt very intentional effort to get him involved around the rim. Defensively. He still had some of the same issues he's been having all year. I think the Pacers are allowing like 120 points per 100 when he's out there. But, and I, I think that his role needs to be somewhat different, but you know, He he had a better game and then the next game Jalen's hand is better and Jalen's back in the rotation and Ijax doesn't play again. So for me, like if if they do, if the reverse is true and they sign Miles to an extension and they see Jalen as the as the more suitable backup five and they are gonna play Isaiah Jackson, then it's like, you know, kind of a situation of what are we doing here? Cause then mm-hmm. it kind of feels like the ceiling for him basically is break glass in case of emergency third string big. And that's for a player that they clearly targeted in the draft because they scraped together assets to move up, to go get him. And it seemed like they felt very positively about him. So there are other ways to develop in the NBA besides just NBA minutes. It's not that I don't believe in him at all. I do think that he's done some nice things throughout the season. It's just that the, the situation for playing time and what roles they have for both sophomores is not good right now and that's that's kind of the one like like i said sour note on the season to this point but that's where we stand with both of them but did you have any like just general needs that you wanted to bring up for the team going into the trade deadline that you would be um, on the lookout for
0: yeah i think uh the best way to um to talk about this team is that they're very much a team that plays to their strengths and i think Kind of like what we were hitting on is they have been able to win a lot of their games by being so overwhelming in their strengths in some ways. And I think what feels different, obviously, these last couple of games, they were able to succeed in spite of their strengths kind of failing them. Um, But I think I continue to just look at this team as really needing uh, more versatile forwards. Uh, slash wings like combo fours to me it really is the answer like a three four because with how how many guards and small wings around the team and how many bigs around the team it just they really miss those play linking type players and I think it's particularly on defense that they miss them like they 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 get they more than get by on offense but I think continually on the defensive end like even yesterday Jalen McDaniels like some of those shots he hit are just straight up because nobody could contest him because he's 6'10", and guys contesting him are 6'4", 6'5", and they don't have massive wingspans. And um, granted, that's not everything. Part of it's how aggressive they've been trying to rotate on defense and the way that they put themselves in a rotation too. But I think to me, it's just more so like, okay. It's, I mean, like even Jeremy Grant in the, in the Blazers game. Like Jeremy Grant just hits a bunch of fuck you shots because – nobody's really got the size to to contest his his release point and i think especially when we talk about playoff basketball that's going to matter a lot more um and i think just in terms of balancing out what the roster is like to me that is the biggest thing just getting more guys who are um who are capable of playing the three four um and being being versatile and being able to do multiple things defensively will while having size
1: Yeah, and you know, there's mitigating factors for why they've been able to win some of the games, but I mean, I, again, here, I'll take another L. I vividly remember you and I talking about, you know, the size they were going to be giving up. And that was before we knew that they were going to be playing four guard lineups pretty much nonstop, that they'd be playing eight guards every night Mm. and looking at matchups with the Orlando magic, which granted Palo Bancaro and Wendell Carter Jr. did not play in those two games. But looking ahead at that matchup, looking ahead at at the matchup with the Raptors, looking ahead at the matchup with the Clippers, and it's like Paul George had 40-plus points, and the Pacers still won that game. Um, Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet were finally healthy for the Raptors, and the Pacers won that game. And they won both games over the Orlando Magic. So at times it's like, you know, I think we have in our heads that like wings – just by nature make a team more versatile Mm. and it's like to an extent you look at the Toronto Raptors and that is not a versatile basketball team like and I I love watching Pascal Siakam that's one of my favorite players to watch but they are very limited defensively and offensively because of the number of wings that they are playing um and what type of scheme they have to play defensively in order to cover up what they don't have and, you know, their lack of shooting and what that means for them and what types of how they end up in so many isolations and so many bully drives and what that means for them on that end of the floor as well. Like it doesn't necessarily guarantee versatility. And when I watch the Pacers play, it's like, Hey, you know, having that many guards on the floor at once really allows them to do a lot of things offensively and really spark sometimes like, Yes, Tyrese is totally the head of what they do in transition, and he is that identity. But by being able to play that many guards, they're able to play early and opposite at a much higher level than what I think they would be possible of doing if they didn't have those guys out there. So, like, sometimes I watch it and I ask myself defensively, like, when we're watching what they did late in that game against the Clippers with Paul George, and they're half court trapping him. And they're giving up some easy scores. And the trapping seems fairly rickety. Cause like I said, like, you know, if, if Paul George goes up there with or I mean, if Miles Turner goes up there with the screener and he's 30 feet from the rim and Paul passes it to the middle of the floor and then, you know, somebody cuts from the corner. That's an easy shot there because they don't have a weak side rim protector on the floor with Miles. And that's where you can point at, like, hey, if they had a four there in that type of spot. You know how much different is that play for them, and they ev- they eventually had to go out of the half court trapping because they weren't rotating well enough out of it to continue doing it. And but they were still doubling him in the post, like we saw a fair amount of doubling against Pascal Siakam. Like that's to me the biggest trend for them defensively this year is how often, whether it's switch to blitz, whether it's half court trapping, whether it's doubling the post that they're having to show extra bodies, that they very much prioritize, you know, we're going to load in and sink into the paint first and spray out to the threes later. And in certain games, they have gotten better at that. Other ones, I don't think that the rotations is great. And I do think that an underrated aspect of why they struggle on the glass is because they are always scrambling. It's Mm -hmm. not even just that they're getting beat physically. It's that they're giving up. It's kind of like when you play zone and you know that like, hey, giving up offensive rebounds is, is might be a tax of this because you're not right next to a body to immediately box them out. You have to go find that when you're watching them in this scramble mode, that's what can happen, especially on some of their long rebounds where they're just not going to get to them. So it does make me wonder like how bad would the rebounding problem be if they had, you know, a four out there where maybe they're not having to double as much, but then my thought process goes back to are they solely doubling as much as they are because of the size or is that a strategy on their part? And I can't always answer that because sometimes it feels like we're doing this late in games because this is what we have to do. And this player has, you know, ethered us. Paul George has 40 points. We have to do something to get the ball out of his hands. And other times they're mixing it in earlier throughout the games. And it makes me think they just, they value the idea of forcing role players to beat them to a degree Like, you know, we're going to be aggressive in this way because we believe we can outshoot their role players better than necessarily stopping that star. And it just makes me wonder if the strategy would change or if this is what strategy they truly believe in. I mean, we do have a sample size from Rick Carlisle that he tends to coach defensively or they attempted to last year to what personnel was on the floor. So maybe they would make that adjustment. I don't fully know the answer to that question, but, and I also don't know, cause I can't look up on synergy, but I just think they have to be very high up there and how often they are trapping people. Um, but that, that's something that I look at, but I definitely see your point. I think that, you know, they would make life easier on themselves if they weren't giving up as many second chance points, but it's kind of like when you would look back at the Miami heat, and the Pacers are not the Miami Heat that won championships, but like they were constantly getting crushed on the glass too. And when you would hear Eric Spolster talk about it, he would be like, you know, I'm not that concerned by it. I'm more concerned at looking at, are we turning opponents over? Are we swarming on defense? And, you know, can we go like those were the indicators for them to win? They were willing to give up some of those rebounds if it meant that they could play with speed and do the things that they were able to do in the open floor. And that's kind of where the pages are at, too. And like I said, like their win percentage in games where they've given up 18 second chance points is better than their overall win percentage. Like that's not necessarily correlation is causation. But they they have shown that they can win without doing that. But that's certainly something they should be looking at. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like they are because they've been there's been rumors in the last couple of weeks about John Collins. There's been rumors in, in the last week about Obi Toppin. Um, I don't we don't need to get super deep into those guys. Maybe we will do a podcast later on just talking about them in general if more stuff heats up. But like that level of a player. How do you feel about the Pacers going after that level of a player, given where they are right now?
0: Uh, I think we'll see. What's tough is that you look at those players and exactly like you're mentioning about the versatility point, like well, they, well, and I think it's John is one that I would love to have a pod just directly talking about him, the two of us, because I think he's a fascinating player, but I think what's tough is like, you get the idea of versatility, but is it really that versatile in some ways? Like, I think it just, you, for, for what you get, you, you almost have more questions about some of the things that you can and can't do on the court. And I think Atlanta's had problems with that. The Knicks, I think part of that's more on Tibbs and his unwillingness to to play double big with OB at the four next to Julius Randall. Um, But point being, like, I I think like those are guys that I would be interested in, but it it brings up a lot of the same questions that I think you already see. And again, John is a different caliber. Like, I think John is the kind of guy that the team should look at. And that's in in essence, like that is the kind of player that I think the team has typically tried to to acquire in in trades like uh, a guy who is. Um, maybe a little bit undervalued by his team. Like John's touches have gone down the last couple of years after being a 20 and 10 guy. And part of that, like that was probably necessary for the team to continue getting to where they're at. But also I think you can have the idea across your mind. Like, okay, is there a way that maybe Rick gets even more out of John Collins and what past coaches have? Like, is if, if he really meshes what, with, with, with what Rick wants, how does that work? But then I always think too, like, okay, well that's great. So you're giving up a bunch of miles. What what's made Miles good and giving that to John Collins? Or do you really believe in him as a as a guy who can play the small ball five, which has not really been something that's been in his bag throughout his career? So there's, I mean, there's a lot of things go off that. But my, my main answer is like, yes, I think like when you're looking at kinds of guys, like a guy who hasn't quite yet hit his prime, who maybe you can unlock a little bit more with him in Indiana. That's going to be here long term.
1: I mean, I think the Toppin thing's interesting because of what he brings to a transition attack. Yeah. I mean, that would be pretty electric, I think, with pairing him with Tyrese Halber. And I think an underrated aspect of Toppin is how he is constantly active. He's Mm -hmm. always looking to set screens. Um, I think he's pretty intuitive in a lot of different ways. I wouldn't have been opposed to going after him last year when some of this was coming up. I think that he got brought up. And the thing about him is he's still on a rookie deal. So you're not taking like a there's not a massive, you know, chunk of salary cap space that's going to be going to Obi Toppin in the immediate at least. Um, The John Collins situation is kind of interesting because of what I mean, the things that you just brought up, what happened to him when they acquired Clint Capella and how that altered the way that he was just even used in their double drags. And are you willing to maybe flip that back? with what they've been doing with miles. Um, John's clearly not shooting the three super well this year, although he did shoot it pretty well against the Pacers (laughs) when the the Hawks came to town. Um, I guess my thought process is, and this isn't even, it's, it's tough to say, but like, you know, if you had to give in more draft capital to get OG on an OB, that kind of goes back to my talking point about thinking big is John Collins thinking big enough to, if you add him in, are you a contender with John Collins? Like if, if I don't know what you're going to have to give up to get John Collins, but are you, are you in the contender tier if you add John Collins? No. Yeah. So then I, I kind think of feel I you're taking like
0: it can, a step, but it's yeah, yeah exactly. Like, I And think it's not because I don't
1: up. think he could help them or yeah. that, you know, whatever. I just feel like that's kind of another, like that is how the Pacers have operated in the past. And is that what this season was supposed to be about? Mm-hmm. like finding ways. Cause I, I think he would be a complementary core player. I don't know that if he necessarily addresses all of their weaknesses, um, I guess is the way that I would look at it. But if stuff heats up, we'll dig into some of these players more in depth, similar to what we did with De'Aaron Fox. And um, I think we did one on, on Rui and Denny last year too, as I recall.
0: Oh yeah, we did, that feels like forever ago. But yes, yeah. so uh,
1: and again, like this is part of the reason why the trade deadline really uh isn't my favorite thing because look how much time we spent researching and talking <laughs> about players that do not play for the Indiana Pacers. Um, but it's anyways. a fun
0: exercise still, but yeah, I agree.
1: Um unless you have more to talk about, I think that covers our topics for this week's um weekly podcast.
0: Yeah, I think that's it for me as well. Well, awesome. Caitlin, uh, this was fun. I always enjoy getting to talk. This was a really good time. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, uh, thoughts, comments, be sure to send them our way on Twitter. Um, And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. Caitlin, I'll talk to you later.